Hey guys, welcome to The Lawyer's Daughter. Yes, I'm wearing the same shirt because I thought I'd do this as video because I'm so happy to be home and you can see this is a cool picture from Santa Paula, California, which is where I was as a little kid. This is the oil museum. If you Google the oil museum from Santa Paula, California, you can see it. When I was a kid, this was just down the street from my dad's office and Santa Paula is, was tiny. It was, it's a tiny little agricultural town just inland from Ventura. And so when we felt like badasses in Ventura because we could ride our bikes everywhere, do everything. We had all kinds of accessibility. And I used to be able to ride my bike, uh, let's see, a third grade, second, third grade. The school was just up the street from this, uh, McKevitt Grammar School. And then my dad's office at first was over by the church. I'd go to choir and then I'd go over to his office after church. And then he moved to 10th Street, which is just up the street from the Oil Museum. And I, I just love this picture because not only is the architecture incredible from that time, and mind you, for those of you that aren't Californians, we think anything that's like 100 years old is amazing. In California, our history doesn't go back that far. We have the, the, in, the Shumash Indians and we have the, um, the missions, but we don't have old, old stuff. The missions are kind of it. So my head exploded when I finally went to Europe and thought, and, and in Israel, when I saw stuff that was, you know, really old, but in California, some things are old that you guys would just scoff at and laugh at us and point and you would be, it's totally legitimate. You could absolutely do that. So this oil museum though, a beautiful piece of architecture, it had it, there's a museum in there. And what we have in California, a lot of the oil is those, um, I'm going to do this for these sawhorse things. They, we call them horses. As you travel through the, the foothills, especially in Southern California, we don't have them in Northern California the same way. In Southern California, we had these, these like seahorses, sawhorses that they go up and down as they pull the oil out. And as if you look at them, if you Google them, um, you should be able to see something. I wish I could think of the better name for them, but they're these oil pumps that pull the oil up but they move so you can come across a whole gathering of them. Uh, 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 what would it be? You know, horses, they come in groups. There's just a word for that, but I can't remember because I'm having a senior moment. Um, a herd, a herd of oil horses. That's what you would see. And they're particularly visible coming up 101. So if you come up 101 from the 101 if you're in Southern California and 101 if you're in Northern California, we're also weird and dialectic like that as well. But we, so if you come up 101 from Southern California, you will see these herds of, of oil horses working away. They're kind of a blight. There's a lot in Ventura County as you go up the river um, going towards Ojai, there are a lot of these oil horses things. Anyway, they, this, the oil, this is a long rambling story about oil museum, but the oil museum was a cool thing in Santa Paula. And I love this picture because it reminds me of how awesome it is. They also, um, let me see if I can show you. I also have here, which is one of my most prized possessions, um, not all the ribbons from Katie's awards at the county fair in Santa Cruz, but this building right here is the Santa Paula um, train station, which is another amazing building. Now looks like I screwed up my camera. It's another amazing building that they kept. I'm really glad they kept it. I still have friends that live in Santa Paula and they assure me it's in good stead, good standing, and it, an incredible tree in front of it, big old sycamore, I think. Think, but I could be wrong because I'm not really good at trees, not like my daughter. So anyway, I feels good to be here and have this setting. And then of course uh, the shelf, the bookshelf is my grandmother's 
from my mom's side, who was my favorite person on the planet. And so I love when I can be with her stuff. So it's nice to be home, nice to be telling stories. And that's why I wanted to be on video so I could share some of that with you because my dorm room only could last so long. The dorm room at Katie's house. Anyway, part two of talking about writing victim statements. So you probably are way over this, but this is an important theme because of what happened to us, us as a group of victims as we were going through this victim impact statement process. And part of it had everything to do with who we are as a cohort, meaning this group of women and men, but especially this really pertains to the women part. We're all generally from this born in the 50s or 60s. I don't know if anybody was young enough to be make it to the 70s or not. Maybe Janelle might be the only one who was that young but then she's not talking, so that's that problem. But we're generally of the same cohort and we had generally the same life experience. And what happened as a oopsie, I think on the part of the district attorney's offices, ended up having a huge impact on us. And it goes very, very hand in glove with Chris Pedretti's, you know, I'm not gonna be a Jane Doe anymore. And in fact, that was Victor too. I don't wanna be John Doe, you say my name. I want to be seen and heard, and I want you to know that this guy hurt me, who I am, which I think is amazing, courageous, and and perfect. I mean, it's just the best way to take back something that happened to you is to step into the light and own it. That's my personal opinion. That's what I advocate for. And if you've been in any way victimized, step into the light, whatever that means, however that works for you. I'm not telling you to take risks you're not prepared to take. Please don't take risks you're not prepared to take. Anyway. And when the district attorneys told us that we had to get these statements done differently than we thought, it had this effect on us. So I wrote about it because I think it's important to note the context. And we are a unique case in that we, we were 40 years in waiting. I mean, that just doesn't happen. Actually, it's happening more often now, and I'm really happy because it's happening because of DNA. So I'm really glad to be part of the trailblazing case that is putting DNA to the test. And we're going to see a lot of uh, legal wrangling over it, but that's okay. That's healthy. That's what we're supposed to do. We should debate. We should analyze. We should evaluate if we're really doing the right thing. But right now we are catching and clearing, clearing the innocent and catching the bad guys and putting some cold cases to bed. And that is powerful. So um, as part of that, though, with this 40 year old case, there are things that happened and that are triggering that you might not expect. So I encourage you, the title of this article, again, I published it to Medium, which is a great platform if you're a writer. Um, Watch good girls confront the Golden State Killer. And it's important that you know when I say good girls, I'm putting those in quotes because that is what we were, are. We we are considered the good girls, at least by, by the societal standard of being compliant, um, basically educated, mostly white. I think in our case, we're all white. I'm not sure, but very homogenous group of women who were encouraged to be assertive, but you know, don't do it so it upsets anybody. So let me go through this. And I'm, I, again, I'm super interested in your take on this. And if you've experienced this and if it, if it resonates for you, it's just going to appeal to an older woman, woman a bit more. But I want our young women to listen to this because I don't want you to ever be trapped by being a big a good girl good girl is used it's term of oppression it truly truly is and i think that's the power of language right you can say something that sounds so 
idealistic and something you might want to aspire to be. You aspire to be a good girl, but in fact, good girl is, is truly, I believe, language of oppression, and it keeps women from being treated equally. And it, it also means that women often get asked to bear, bear more of the, of the pain in a way that men don't. And, and maybe men push it away. And I, I can't speak for the male perspective, obviously, obviously, but I do think that women are often told that, you know, it's, it's very much like children. You are to be seen and not heard, or if you're to be heard, you're to be nice about how you say it. And by the way, don't say it unless we want to hear it from you. And then when we say it, the, we'll make sure that we reiterate it for you because clearly a woman couldn't possibly express her own thoughts in a way that's coherent and clear. Like that just wouldn't be possible, right? Okay, so there you go, my politics, my feminist side showing, but I think feminism is really healthy for us. I think anything where we're questioning the norms is healthy for us. So question, 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 always question. We get to the, we get to the nice middle part eventually, but please question, it's a sign of thinking. Okay, so watch the good girls confront the Golden State Killer. The victims are ready to confront Joseph D'Angelo next month. And I wrote this on July 27th, which was, I think, on the weekend or this week. I just want to get this out because, again, it's about the process. I feel privileged to be among the victims of the Golden State Killer. I didn't see it coming. I couldn't have predicted it. But it has absolutely been vital to getting me through the last two years since Joseph D'Angelo's arrest. Don't get me wrong, not being in this club would have been okay too. But since I couldn't prevent that, the crime and everything else, uh, finding myself among these amazing women and men have been, has been life-sustaining. Truly, I speak to that all the time. Y'all know that story. These, not doing this alone is incredibly powerful. So even if you are alone, if you can enlist your mom or your sister or your best friend or the person that's willing to listen to you online, whatever that is, find your support and tap into it. That's how I feel about the people that listen to this podcast. Y'all have been incredibly supportive. I feel so honored to have had a support group that I didn't even realize I needed until y'all were there. And then it's just from the first day I joined Twitter as Jennifer Carroll, Jennifer Smith being the same person, I've had incredible support and I, I can't say enough good about that. We share struggles that bring us together. Thanks to a private discussion group, we victims are able to speak with one another without judgment. Sometimes it's an article or an update from the court um, with different jurisdictions. As you know, it's been a bit of a mess with all of us not getting the same information. Other times in our private group, we'll have a sad moment or a memory, or we just need a place to share. And often it's been our place to scream, our black hole, our void. There have been times during this war where there has, we've needed to vent. And even in this writing of the statements, Different ones of us that tend to be maybe a little more extroverted have absolutely used this place to talk, to just say some of the things that we know we want to say, but we can't because it's probably not appropriate. Maybe using profanity, that much profanity would be over the line or it's too raw and we just can't bring ourselves to say it because then we'd have to own it and take responsibility for it and carry it forward into the world. There's a lot of things that are complicated about dealing with a trauma and anybody who's been through it knows some stuff you just you can't even bear to, to lift the cover to look at it because it's just too much it's no secret that writing my victim impact statement has been difficult but i did get it done especially when trying to represent the person 
40, I was 40 years ago, along with the person I am today. That's where this process has become interesting to me. So as a rhetoric major, I look at two things when I look at and when I assess language. So even like a speech like today, we hear speeches, we're listening to funerals, we're listening to all kinds of things that are going on right now where there's some their speeches being made. I tend to look at two things. One is the context, what's going on around that's causing the speech to be relevant or meaningful, and that's maybe even helping clarify the speech or providing context. And then what is being the actual words being said. So the words generally we're very intentional about. If we have a chance, we have time to think that through. Sometimes we're good extemporaneous speakers. Sometimes we're crappy at it. But, but those two things, the context and the words, are what I enjoy taking a look at. And so the context, I think, is often as important as the words we choose. So in this case, we have a lot of former good girls, many of whom are told never to discuss their rape, coming to terms with their own grown-ass woman need to be heard. So you guys know Chris Pedretti's group on Facebook. Uh, I've got a link to it. Um, I've got a link to it on the Lawyer's Daughter Facebook page. It's pinned there. You can always message me for that on Facebook. Even you can send a messenger. I'll get you to Chris's group. It's a private group. It's for victims of sexual assault who are ready to tell their story. And I think the group's called It's Time to Tell Your Story. But Chris's group is powerful in that way. And what I see in watching the sexual assault victims come in, and mind you, most of those, oh my God, I was going to say our regular sexual assaults. I can't believe I was going to say something so shitty. Our, but our more typical, typical because the per, their perpetrator is someone they know, dated, a relative, a family member. I mean, it, it makes me sick, the, the closeness of it. There is some privilege in having your bad guy be anonymous or a serial rapist or a serial killer because nobody ever doubts you. You're not doubted. There's not one minute any of these rape victims that are currently official are doubted. Now the ones that are unofficial, they are doubted and that pisses me off. But if you think about most sexual assaults, they happen with someone you know and you're doubted. And so finding, getting rid of that good girl response and finding your grown ass woman voice is really an important part of this process. So if you don't know where to start, I encourage you to join Chris's group. She provides a ton of support, as do the other people in that group. You do not have to be a woman. You can be a man. It doesn't matter. It matters that you want, you want support and that you'd like a safe place to talk. That's what that group is for. Okay, so back to the story. The number one thing that inflames the victims of the Golden State Killer is being told to be nice. Let me take you back to the late 1970s. And now I wish I could morph into Carol Daly with her badass hair and her holding her gun in such a, in her hot, cool pantsuit. Carol's just like the icon for me of imagining a badass woman in the 70s. But that's not really how women were. Well, the women's movement was gaining momentum. We were still taught to be good. Being good meant we were supposed to manage our activism. So... You could be a feminist, but if your male partner or your parents were progressive, they'd indulge that feminism, but only if we got our other dirt work done first. So your schoolwork, your work work, your cooking, your cleaning, your childcare, your shopping, your child raising, all that kind of stuff. You can do all that. Remember to cook up the bacon and fry it up in a pan. I could bring home the bacon and fry it up in a pan. That was the ideal we were held up to. We had to go earn the bacon, buy the bacon, cook the bacon, serve the bacon, and 
clean the damn bacon grease up. And yes, I slammed the desk. I can't believe we have to clean up the grease too. So that's just it. Like that's, that's the ideal that was, we were held up against. Look, I moved my camera because I slammed the desk. Um, okay. So anyway, that, so imagine though, this is the seventies. You're supposed to be a feminist. You're supposed to be assertive. You're supposed to women's rights and also do all the things right and be a good girl. Um, I was still a teenager and like most of the women of my time, minding my manners and being respectful was expected. We were absolutely expected to mind our manners and be respectful. That was, not only were you told to do that as a child, that's just how you were groomed as you moved into college. I realize now the way, that's the way they kept us in line, in line by repeatedly telling us to behave. Good girls could have smarts, but it was important not to embarrass the family. And then I have this cool quote from an article that is absolutely worth reading. It's linked to in Medium. Apparently, you're, when you're seen as a good girl, people think they can get away with anything because they know you'll continue to behave like a mature, respectful adult, regardless of what's thrown in your face. And that is why that good girl, girl, girl moniker is such um, a word of oppression, is because it's intended to keep you in your place. And as we now are coming to terms as a country with how we have oppressed people in our society by demanding that they conform to some sort of standard that none of us agreed to. And I'm not saying I want anarchy because I don't, that's not productive. I don't want anarchy, but I do want to see people as individuals and evaluate them and listen to them based on their individual merit and worth. That is all that this is about. So Telling someone to behave and basically asking them to shut up is not how we value them as an individual based on their own worth. Okay, so I could argue that good girls were some of the reasons serial rapists thrived in the 1970s. The rapists found little resistance from society as sexual assault was not seen as the horrible crime it is today. Add to it the confluence of women struggling to embrace their individuality and power with the broader cultural pressure for women to mind their manners and avoid controversy. And you'll understand the cognitive dissonance we experienced. So I see that confluence as, you know, women were getting woke and they were trying to fight for their rights. They're trying to be assertive as they balance that whole bacon cooking thing. And, and I suspect it probably pissed some men off, especially the men who we see now um, that, are they the incels, these weird little men now who somehow feel like it's women's fault that they're virgins? Like, I can't even, are you kidding me? Go shower, shave yourself, put on some clean clothes. There's no reason you can't find a woman. We're, we accept everything. If you look at it, women will date anything. My God, we just want you to be a good person. So it's not really that hard, but it's that same kind of anger for those men that feel like somehow they've been emasculated because of someone else doesn't happen like that you emasculate yourself so same dynamic in place now as then so you've got women trying to do trying to to rise and find their place you have society saying yeah you can rise this much but don't go too far because if you go too far you're going to be annoying and well we need you to do your job if the structure of the economy will fall apart if women get all uppity and work that sort of thing going on and then that cognitive dissonance of like i i'm supposed to be good but you decide that me speaking up for myself and me having my voice is somehow not good. That is having conflicting thoughts in your mind, that cognitive dissonance. Okay, so it created the, per my hypothesis is that it created the perfect cultural storm. I am sure this chasm, this gap between being 
encouraged to be assertive while being good, caused enough distraction to allow deranged men to commit horrific crimes with little to no consequence. After these monsters raped, the police, think about this now, after the rape occurred, think about all the systems one, one touches after a violent crime that have to see you as a victim and empower you as a victim so that you can be heard. Think of all the places that touch. And this is so relevant to what's happening today because you, you get harmed or something that involves our, league, our, our structures, our societal structures happens. And then you have to deal with how the, the internal bias, the systemic racism we're talking about now, that internal set of beliefs that powers that organization. You, one little old you, little old you are supposed to somehow cope with all that belief system that's in place and that's reinforced by the system itself, the, stru the social structure itself. So I may be being too abstract, but let me bring this back down and be really clear. After these monsters raped, the police, the legal system, the community, and sadly, very often the families of the victims asked the victims to be good girls, to be quiet, and to get on with life. We do this all the time. We tell people, oh, that's sad, but shouldn't you go to the store? Or shouldn't you be going to do something else? Or who's taking care of the kids? We do this all the time. We don't see people for who they are or what they're experiencing. And we then force them to deal with these these structures that have an inherent bias. The statute of limitations on sexual assault is the perfect codification of this perfect storm. And what I mean by codification is that it basically ratified, it made it the law that sexual assault, at least back then, was only worth, with, oh, the statute of limitations was three years. If you don't catch them in three years, Never mind, it didn't really happen. We're just gonna pretend. We'll throw away your file, we'll throw away your DNA, we'll throw away everything. Grr. Okay. So in 2020, let's fast forward because that's the 70s. We've got that 40 years ago, right? In 2020, there's no more room for good girls. Not as they were defined decades ago. And yet here we are. The victim impact statement process triggered a lot of angst. And as I watched and listened, I believed our collect I believe our collective reaction which was visceral, meaning we felt it in our bones, in our stomachs, in our throats. You told not to talk, you get, a, you get a sore throat. You told you can't say something you need to say, you start to feel sick about it. Yeah, it's a visceral reaction. It was so powerful because it once again felt like they were, we were being told to be good girls. I know this wasn't the attention of the district attorney's offices, but alas, it was the result. Initially, we were told our statements were due on August 1st. So that even, I think even the judge said that at the plea hearing, that August 1st is when the statements were due, because that was the plan. And we had all kind of been living with that. I know I kind of had budgeted my time, my uh, mentally psychic time, in terms of how I'd manage my feelings and things, thinking, okay, get through the plea hearing, kind of just detox for a week, then maybe start to regain my life for a week so I could get back on my two feet and feel not all that HBO stuff, like not just an emotional wreck, right? Get my strength back and then start to work. But in, then what happened, um, uh, we, the, the date got moved. So let me go on. Okay, initially we were told our statements were due on August 1st. Naturally, we assumed we could do and say whatever we wanted. It didn't come with a lot of instructions up front. We had talked about these victim impact statements. We began talking about it in March. And even then, 
we were not provided with a lot of limitations or well, I'll call them parameters or guidelines, which, which is probably a much more fair description of it. Many of the victims fantasized about how they would directly address Joseph D'Angelo. After 40 years facing a man who basically has not suffered at all in a case that didn't have a trial, didn't have any explanation for his behavior, after not hearing one word from the son of a bitch besides guilty and I admit, and frankly, did we even hear either of those words with much air behind them? No, he barely managed to <coughs> them out for us. Um, it, we would at least have the section, we believed we would at least have the satisfaction of saying whatever was on our minds. Um, we really had a lot of pent up demand, but we, alas, we discovered that's not how it would work, that there were rules that we had to follow. So now I shift a little bit because I said, I, I mentioned pay attention to the words and the context. I talked about context earlier. Here's why. This context matters and the context is and the context is what's setting up some of these rules. The court has rules and a process that a certain decorum is expected. One of the things that we heard, that I heard anecdotally from um, my prosecutor, my beautiful, beautiful Cheryl, is that the not being in a courtroom at Sac State had some drawbacks, drawbacks for them, drawbacks that, that they had to manage that I think we probably didn't notice because I don't do this every day. Um, I thought we did okay, but she said it really did have some, some drawbacks. So the first thing that we learned is that our statements must address the judge. We are not to address the convict or the defendant or the offender, but I call him the convict. If nothing else were communicated to us, this would have been enough. This was likely the hardest thing for us to digest, and I mean us collectively. Some of the victims had been working on their statements since the day of his arrest, and finding out we weren't allowed to speak to him directly was devastating. Again, I think this is a California, um, a product of California law, not necessarily the same in your state, so please make sure you check your states, how this works for you, but for us in California, we do address the judge. Next up, the statements needed to be turned in a week earlier than planned, July 23rd instead of August 1st. And this hit us on two fronts. One is that we had just managed to shower off the filth that we had lived through on the 29th at the plea hearing. Nearly everyone sat through that whole thing and it was like bathing in toxic waste. The detox took more than a few days. Most of us found ourselves in a state of utter exhaustion as we could finally put the big moment behind us. I know as we talked, we were sleeping. There was a lot of sleeping, like real sleeping, not crappy sleeping, real sleeping. There was good eating going on. We walked, we caught up on email, we got physical again, we did things. We paced ourselves knowing we had until month end to get the darn victim impact statement done. That's how we were living until it got moved up. But more importantly, with the date change came a subliminal message. And this is really important because it, it absolutely speaks to the theme of this, of my point here, which is, we take things in a certain way based on how we were raised and how we were raised is that you are not allowed to really act up or act out in fact what jane did at the plea hearing would have been considered the height of inappropriate right because she disobeyed she stood up she approached the, the offender she um took matters into her own hands and like i said i watched that bailiff come right up and God love him. He just watched her. He didn't, he didn't act, which, which is signs of a woke younger person, because I think an older bailiff would have stopped her. 
honestly, based on how we were socialized. I think an older bailiff might have got involved. This bailiff was definitely younger, and he, he used, I just considered him really using his intuition there. Okay, so the subliminal message that was sent is the district attorneys would be reviewing our statements. Now, I'm sure that is not what's happening, but what the subtext was definitely there that they were going to be reviewing our statements, not just reading them, but actually providing some sort of feedback, maybe is a good way to say. If you want to see good girls get, after 40 years, 40 years lose their collective minds, intimate their statements will be reviewed. That's all they did. They suggest, they said reviewed, but they suggested it was much more than I think what's really happening. For good girls, that was the 1970s code for being judged, censored, and being told how we must behave. Our group blew up. What began as anger and rage morphed into, I'm not about to be told what to do. That's what D'Angelo did to me. I am not going to be silenced. I will do what I damn well please. It was inspired, badass, and for me, absolutely invigorating. So I, of course, don't have the body memory of being raped, I'm, I'm in the murder side of this thing, but I watching these women who have waited so long to finally tell their stories and to say what they have to say, feel in any way they were going to be censored or edited or managed, fired them up. They fired up hot. The victim impact statement is reading is television. I think is going to be worth watching. So I expect Sacramento will live stream the statements via YouTube. We hear they'll be, we'll be in an actual courtroom, courtroom one, and we'll be doing it in shifts to allow for social distancing. They're building the schedule now and balancing all of the variables, including the length of what we've written, where we live, the crimes, jurisdictions, essentially. And what I know now today is that they are going to lead with the sexual assault victims on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday is murder Thursday, and then Friday is sentencing. So that's how it'll play out. It will begin on the 17th and sentencing will happen on that, though that's a Monday, and the sentencing will happen on Friday and we'll be able to attend in person the sentencing on Friday at Sac State if that venue sticks, very much like what we saw for the plea hearing, but that will not be the case for the reading of the victim impact statements. This will be an online event of which I will participate as well online. I'll read my statement in, in court but then everything else I'll be watching online as well, be just with you guys watching this unfold. Um, I cannot, so I can't wait to see what my fellow victims do. We haven't really, I think I've only heard two people's statements, honestly. We've kind of all holding our cards close to the vest because this is, this is our moment, right? We don't really wanna share it out ahead. The two that I've heard are fantastic, amazing. Um, just, I just feel so proud of, of my friends. Um, so I, I don't want to blow your mind, but the good girl garbage I'm talking about isn't over. In 2018, 2018 people, a mere two years ago, there was a Stanford study done that found that the most desirable traits listed for women were still about relationships. Get this, loyalty, compassion, warmth, being cheerful, and being soft-spoken. Yes, nobody likes a loud woman. This is probably why I sit here by myself in my office, because I am a loud woman. <sighs> okay, so that's, my point is, it's not over. We are still fighting the same battle. 
And anyone who listens to this, get woke, pay attention to women and stop expecting things from them that are basically um, signs of oppression. I want you to look for ways to give women voice, to give anybody victims voice, to give anybody who might not have the power to have their voice heard. This is our opportunity to lift those voices. Um, Hopefully, as the fierce women of the Golden State Killer are concerned, these are not the traits that will be on display at the hearing. While we respect the court, and we do, and understand the importance of decorum, which we do, I expect we'll get to see each victim's individuality shine through. I expect them to leave their good girl persona at the door and deliver their statement with truth, conviction, strength, and dignity. Every darn one of us has a reason to feel proud. This man didn't stop us then, and he's not going to stop us now. So that's it. It's going to be coming up. I'm going to set up the Zoom meetings to talk about each day. We're going to have things to talk about. I have a few more guests coming up. And then um, I am going to be putting out a survey for all of my listeners, and I don't have it ready yet, so I can't do it today. But the case is changing, and things are changing. And at some point, I'm going to want to put this to bed, but I'm not quite ready yet. I talked with James Huddle today. He's open to talking, but not right now. He's kind of worn out. <laughs> I get that. I absolutely get that. I get him needing to have a little rest. He's sitting in a different place than I am. So I, for them, it's probably even more raw in some ways because it's it's their relative that's going to go away forever. So there are, I want to talk to Carol Daly. I've mentioned that. There's some other folks, but I want to know who you think I should talk to. Should I talk to more victims? What should I be doing? So let me get that survey set up and then it'll be, there'll be, I want to put it on a page. I can also show you who I'm planning to interview so you can see what's already in the works, but you might have some great ideas of where to go with this. I suspect I will wrap it up by the end of the year, but right now this is, unless I take this in a completely different direction and I'd love to get that feedback from you as well. I'm not going to be good at chasing cold cases and talking about real crime because that's not really what I think a lot about. I tend to think more about the ways we can influence and help each other and lift each other up. I think that's our opportunity as we're changing as a society. So that's, I have a lot more passion there. Even around this stuff, I have a lot more passion there. So I'll get that survey together and then I'll get that out to everybody as well. But in the meantime, I hope you're having a great day. Thank you for listening to The Lawyer's Daughter and I will talk to you next time. Venture Highway.